Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. I am Uzair Yunus. My guest today is Dr. Omer Javed, who is an assistant professor at the Lahore University of Management Sciences and non-resident fellow at Tabadla. Omer and I discussed the politics of taxation and bureaucratic reforms in Pakistan and his views on what can be done to accelerate the pace of reforms in the country. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed this discussion. Omer, welcome to Pakistanomy. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. So you've been writing about uh, and talking about reforms in Pakistan, particularly in the taxation and bureaucracy. Um, and, you know, we've been hearing about these reforms and the need for reforms for decades uh, at this point in time. There have been task forces, committees, reports, but not much has happened in real terms in terms of uh, pushing these reforms forward. And I wanted to get your take on this in terms of why has that been the case? Why is it that Pakistan continues to talk about broadening the tax base, but real reform has not come through? And why is it that people like Dr. Ishad Hussain continue to enter the government and talk about bureaucratic reforms, but besides releasing a report or two, uh, nothing really moves forward? Um, okay, so would you want me to start with taxation before civil service reform? Sure, let's start with taxation. Okay, so I think uh, there's a there there are a couple of things I think that we need to clarify before we start talking about the impetus for reform and what makes reform possible. I think one thing is that we that we all understand by now, and I think there's been a shift in the in the academic literature on this issue as well as well as sort of the approach that's used by major donors like the World Bank and DFID, uh, is that uh, it's not through the absence of policy advice that seems to be the problem, but it's largely around the politics of actually implementing reform, which is why uh, countries such as Pakistan continue to exhibit the same uh, traits, the, the same bad traits, so to speak, uh, over extended periods of time. So if you go back right. at any point and you look at any uh, of these sort of reform commissions that have been formed, whether it's in taxation, uh, whether it's in uh, civil service reforms, uh, whether it's uh, sort of in kickstarting private sector uh, economic activity, you'll find that the list of uh, prescriptions that are often offered are pretty similar. Uh, and these are, they are commonsensical prescriptions. So we know we need to broaden the tax base to in, in order to sort of uh, a fund development, but also ensure that we don't keep encountering fiscal deficits, right? We know we need to improve the quality of the civil service so that policy implementation is made more coherent um, and regulation is more effective uh, and the private sector has greater births to actually do what it wants to do, right? These are things that are, very categorically stated, and these are the yep. things that the state is uh, objectively committed to. But it doesn't mm -hmm. happen like that, and which is why, uh, you know, now we're sort of becoming more aware of the fact that there are politics to reform implementation, and that's where the crux of the matter actually lies. That's where the problem actually lies. Uh, and this sounds really commonsensical, uh, that obviously, you know, if you're undertaking any sort of transformation in the way a particular system works, it will produce winners and losers, and losers yeah. will try to combat it, and winners will try to drive it through, um, and that's politics, right? That is essentially politics, and that's something but, that you need to tackle. Particularly in a place like Pakistan, where you know elite interest is tightly wrapped into the politics of the country, and there really isn't a true middle class or lower class voice in parliament or the politics of the country. Sure, and and parliament is one forum in which uh, which in which sort of winners and losers can often uh, engage in conflict. Uh, but there are other fora as well, including the bureaucracy itself and other informal mm -hmm. uh, sort of domains in which politics also takes place. Right. So this is this all this comes really down to uh, the the approach that uh, you know which which Mustafa Khan 
who was a political economist at, uh, at SOAS, was previously at Cambridge, what he called the political settlement approach, right? So at any given point in a country, uh, there are certain, uh, there's, there, there's an equilibrium of power in which certain institutions, organizations, actors um, essentially interact in particular patterns and those patterns reproduce themselves. Um, and those mm -hmm. patterns can be, uh, they can be beneficial for growth, for example, they can be beneficial for social welfare, uh, but they can also be incredibly detrimental. Uh, but because those patterns are, uh, exist in a state of equilibrium and there are no incentives for those patterns to change at that point, that's why they persist over a longer period of time. And I think that's the story that we can okay. very easily start off with. That's the model that we can very easily start off with when we try to understand both taxation um, and the general state of the bureaucracy or the civil services in Pakistan. Uh, so yeah, so to so start off now, I think I'm going to start off with taxation. Yeah, let's um, let's go into taxation. So so taxation, I think, is a is a is a recurring problem. Pakistan has generally done poorly, uh, you know, compared to uh, comparator countries, mostly other lower middle income countries, in raising its tax to GDP ratio. Uh, now there's an entire debate on whether that is some that's a desirable outcome um, in the first place or not. But I think let's agree for the sake of this podcast that uh, a country wants to spend more on development and that needs mm -hmm. resources to do so, right? So let's just use that as our, as our sort of basic premise. We won't sort of go into uh, this idea of whether countries should, states should even tax or not, right? So that's a separate thing. So given this particular starting point, uh, what we do know is that Pakistan uh, spends, the, the taxes that Pakistan does collect uh, largely come from indirect sources, which means that these are taxes which people don't have to voluntarily submit, uh, voluntarily submit that they're deducted either at source or they're deducted in the course of transactions. Yeah. Um, uh, and the other thing is, uh, the other major thing is that the bulk of expenditures that the Pakistani state incurs are also largely expenditures which are, are non-development expenditures, right? So we have debt servicing, we have uh, pension liabilities, and we have uh, defense, obviously, right? So yeah. that's where a bulk of your fiscal revenue is actually going in. So uh, again, the, the obvious answer to this is, yeah, we need to broaden the tax base so that we have more money to spend on the PSDP. And currently, the PSDP is almost entirely uh, funded through uh, the acquisition of new loans rather than through the state's own yeah. uh, resources. And um, PSDP, for those who may not be familiar, is the Public Sector Development Program, program. which is the big government spending in infrastructure. Yeah. So uh, so here we have, a, uh, we have an interesting case study to work with, which is the new government coming in in 2018 um, and the new government that is very rhetorically at least committed to uh, sort of various types of reform, including fiscal reform, um, you know, improvement in terms of growth outcomes, also welfare-related outcomes. So all of those things are very much part of this package that the that the new government has committed itself on doing, right? Um, and it also intends or has intended on bringing in uh, technocratic support uh, as far as key government offices are concerned, right? So the the most sort of clear-cut example of this is bringing in Shabar Zaidi. Um, yeah. as the chairperson of the federal bureau, which we, I will ask for you for your opinion on that a bit later, but sure. yes, let, yeah. So, uh, so, so they've, uh, so this government is not the first one to identify a, a key problem in the way that the tax system currently works. And there've been previous governments in the past that have done it as well. And they've also taken some steps in trying to resolve it. But that key problem essentially is that the revenue that the Pakistani state collects is overwhelmingly from two sources, taxes on production or manufacturing and taxes on trade. And by that, we mean international trade. Uh, and there's a, there's a very sort of, there's again, a very simple reason why that's the case. The simple reason is that it's just easier to deduct taxes at those particular points in the economy, right? You have goods coming in, you can stop them, you can collect taxes off of them, and then they can pass through to the rest of the country. 
similarly, with a country with a manufacturing base that's relatively small, like Pakistan, you know the number of fixed formal sector enterprises in manufacturing that are producing goods, especially fast-moving consumer goods. And you can actually sort of just go there and document what how much they're producing, and you can actually take tax off of that, right? So essentially, our sales tax system is a, uh, for inland production it works like an excise tax, which means it's a tax on production rather than on mm -hmm. sale. Now the problem and is, so, uh, yeah, you know, sorry. just to interrupt you here, like I, I wanted to ask you about this because you mentioned indirect taxes. A lot of people in Pakistan continue to say that's the mainstream rhetoric. Pakistani tax and mm -hmm. my view has always been every Pakistani pays taxes just that it's collected in the form of indirect taxes which yeah. is a very regressive form of taxation so to say that Pakistanis don't pay taxes is not true it's just that the structure of the taxation system is what is the problem here exactly so the so everyone paid ta pays tax uh, I think one could possibly argue uh, if one were to I mean if I do play the, the devil's advocate here and I would argue that a, not a lot of Pakistanis pay income tax uh, and yes. that's a, that's a more specific kind of tax. And one could even sort of respond by saying, well, that's because most pa Pakistan is a poor country. Most Pakistanis don't actually meet the threshold requirement. Uh, but I guess the caveat here would be that most pa many Pakistanis were eligible to pay income tax, don't actually pay income tax. I think that's the one critique that you could make. Uh, but anyway, so so the so the, the the current structure of taxation then is is regressive as you've already mentioned because it's reliant on indirect taxes right so at some point over the last 20 25 years uh, possibly longer um the imf uh, other donors uh, advising the, the pakistan on uh, the pakistani state on on fiscal reforms suggested that pakistan move to a reform general uh, sales tax regime or what we call a value-added uh, taxation regime which would collect taxes at every stage of the value chain right so that would mean manufacturing but then also wholesale, retail distribution, and so on and so forth, right? So the problem is, uh, so the, the good thing is that that is actually what uh, is supposed to happen, right? And there's a lot of literature on uh, the sort of, you know, the efficiency of a VAT regime. And that generally says that it unleashes, um, a, you know, economic potential, that it reduces compliance costs, it's, uh, it's, you know, it increases revenue for the state, and so on and so forth. So great, that's great technical policy advice. Now comes the problem with implementation. Pakistan has had at least four major in, uh, episodes of trying to implement uh, a reform general sales tax or a VAT regime at different points, right? Uh, one attempt was made in the 19, in the mid, late 1990s under the second Nawaz Sharif government. We had another attempt in the early Musharraf years. We had a third attempt uh, between 2011 and 2013. And uh, in recent years, we're sort of gearing up for another attempt, uh, essentially over the last year and a half. Um, which is each... which is interesting because every time that attempt is made by the political parties, at least the ones that I've seen, the opposition says we're not going to let it happen. But then the opposition comes to power and makes exactly. the same attempt at the at the reform. So so that tells you two things: a they're not very smart in terms of where they what, what <laughs> sort of battles battles they pick, and the second thing is that uh, that essentially, you know, they're the actual crisis of implementation is uh, it goes beyond just a particular political party that is something that everyone has experienced um, there's a third point i think that that needs to be said here which is the uniformity of policy advice uh, that is often given to pakistan across you know different time periods but uh, but you know that's that's a separate debate altogether there, there's anyway, some consistency there right there is there is a lot of consistency yeah so uh, so i think um, so these various attempts were made and they always come against uh, some sort of oppositional politics, right? And that oppositional politics is sometimes centered in parliament. 
where opposition parties say, no, we won't let this happen. Sometimes our oppositional politics is within a party, right? Uh, but it's always connected to some group or some faction or some, uh, you know, I hate using this word lobby. Uh, uh, and yeah. actually the worst word is mafia, right? It's always connected to some mafia. mafia. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The flavor of the month in Pakistan these days, right? So <laughs> it's some mafia that seeks to undermine the implementation of GSC. And uh, to be fair, uh, you know, sometimes those factions have reasonably good reasons as to why they want to do it. But the fact of the matter is that there is conflict in terms of what the state wants or what a section of the state wants mm -hmm. and what uh, sections of society are actually what they're willing to comply with, right? Um, and in each of these cases, the biggest opposition has actually come in from the retail wholesale sector, right? Uh, or what we call, you know, the, the distribution part of the economy. So, uh, and they're crucial to the implementation of this uh, reform general sales tax, sales tax regime because uh, wholesalers and retailers are those second or third stage at which you're supposed to be collecting this tax. Right now, you're only collecting it at the first stage, which is the manufacturer. So, uh, so just to connect yeah. the dot there, like one thing that just came to mind. So the attempt made by Shabarzadi, and we'll talk about that later, but the attempt that he tried to make to install cash registers, for example, at, yeah. at the retail side was an attempt to move towards that. Would you say that, that that's an accurate assessment or was that unrelated to what we're talking about? No, that is exactly what it's supposed to be, right? So Shabar okay. uh, Zaidi, uh, like, um, you know, previous revenue advisors and finance ministers uh, has created this, uh, has, has sort of worked on this distinction that there are certain retailers uh, who, who operate large businesses uh, and have relatively decent margins for retail enterprises. Um, but are consistently underreporting the sales that they actually have, right? So whether we want to call it desi kachi or just not documenting a certain, you know, a certain amount of sales that they do, uh, maintaining two, two or multiple books, all of that, right? So one way to sort of mitigate that is to install cash registers, which are directly connected to, uh, or what we call POS registers, point of sale registers, which yeah. are directly connected to the FPR system. And so you were able to track their actual economic activity in, in real time. Uh, side note, this was actually done very successfully by the Punjab Revenue Authority when it did something called the restaurant and voice monitoring system, where it was actually documenting what good relatively upscale restaurants and the amount of business they were doing so that they could enforce a sales tax on service on restaurants. Um, so this is something similar. And when was this? Uh, so this happened pretty much all of 2010, 11 onwards. Uh, this was, yeah, so this was, uh, it's been replicated in Sindh as well. Uh, but basically it, something like this has happened, but for only one type of retail service, which is restaurants, yeah. it hasn't happened for general retail, uh, you know. Uh, and so this was their attempt to do it. Now, uh, what is the opposition that comes out? The opposition, uh, so let's take it at face value. The first opposition that usually comes out is that the cost of complying with a, with a general sales tax regime is too high. Uh, the retail wholesale sector is essentially fragmented between millions of retailers and wholesalers, um, and they are essentially actors that uh, maintain very small businesses, hardly employ, uh, mostly either deal in self-employment or uh, employ family labor or at most two or three other people. Uh, they don't have a sophisticated accounting mechanisms. They don't have access to uh, tax lawyers and accounting resources. So maintaining, uh, or uh, in the case of wholesalers, becoming withholding agents, whereby they would have to withhold uh, sales taxes and then deposit them to the government, uh, includes uh, a sort of cost of compliance that becomes quite high. That's the first uh, argument against mm -hmm. it. The second argument that's often given is that by uh, sort of becoming into the tax net, that's the term that they use, 
that by, by falling into the stacks net, they are they become sitting ducks for state predation. Okay, so that basically once they're visible, uh, there's a greater likelihood that the government is going to sort of uh, you know that tax inspectors, local officials uh, will start preying on them um, using the threat of uh, audits, the threat of sort of um, you know closures, seizures, and so on and so forth. Right. So a, that's the third. That's the second issue that they have. Uh, the third issue is, is is broader, which is that they operate with very little margins in the first place. So the cost of compliance is too high; that would eat into their margins, and they would essentially go out of business. Right? Uh, these are the these are the arguments that are given on face value, and I think there is some. And my yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that those are, I think, flimsy reasons, and I would like your analysis on this. But I mean, you look at India, for example, it did the GST tax system a few years ago, and the BJP mm -hmm. under Modi and Finance Minister Arun Jaitley was able to push that. They were the same excuses used there. And, you know, GST has its critiques in terms of it, it wasn't implemented in as seamless a manner as it should have, which is fair, but mm -hmm. it didn't mean the end of the world for retailers. Um, the fact that they're afraid of the tax man coming after them once they're part of the tax system is also questionable because if you don't have anything to hide, then why would someone come after you is, is my point. And I think the data, at least regionally, when you look at in the retail wholesale trade, the margins are actually quite high, which is mm -hmm. why if you look at markets like Bangladesh and India, it's becoming formalized really quickly because large retailers who are part of the formal economy are looking at the sector and saying, wait a minute, there's a 30%, 35% margin in the supply chain itself. And if I consolidate mm -hmm. that, I can take 15, 20% of that margin and give the rest of the 10% to consumers in the form of lower prices. And so that if, if the margins were really thin, the sector wouldn't be consolidating on the formal side in the rest of the region either. Well, so the I guess the answer to, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm not... Uh, I feel like I'm going to be advocating for the traders here, but I'm not really. <laughs> but one of the answers that they would give is that there is very little formal sector consolidation happening on the retail and wholesale side in Pakistan. Uh, the, uh, in fact, it's happening at a much slower pace than uh, in India or Bangladesh. Actually, India is is a is a mixed bag there as well. There have been various attempts at consolidating uh, consumer goods retail, at least uh, in you know, including through the entry of big players like. Uh, Walmart, for example, mm -hmm. uh, they haven't been particularly successful because uh, breaking the sort of the existing model of very diffuse, fragmented retail has proven to be a challenge uh, for that side of the for, for 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 India in general as well. Bangladesh is a case that I'm not intimately familiar with, but I'll, but obviously what you say is if that's the case there, then sure that's an important negative case that invalidates. Yeah, and even in India for even in India, for example, like if you look at like market research coming out, like smartphone sales feature phone sales actually now about half of them go through formal sectors now versus the small mom and pop shop shop right sure. so there is some but anyways we we're going on a tangent but tangent. Uh, yeah ba ba back to the retail uh, wholesalers excuses of why they don't want to be so so that's in, so those the are system. the so those are the principal excuses that they end up giving right and uh, the state uh, has a set of responses to these excuses uh, this the biggest response that the state has which i find very persuasive um, is that uh, essentially uh, the wholesale retail sector uh, contributes 18% uh, to overall GDP, uh, but only 0.5% in terms of total federal taxes, right? So mm -hmm. uh, even if that, I mean, that's a pretty big disjunct, right? That's a, that means yeah. that you're, uh, that, that's a 17.5% part of the GDP that simply that goes, uh, that is undertaxed, uh, so to speak, uh, as it exists right now. In terms of compliance, they do, they're, they're, they do terribly sort of, you know, they do terribly, 
uh, of, you know, badly on this particular front as well. The compliance part is it just reveals that um, only 41% of all sales tax NTN holders, the national tax number holders, actually end up filing returns. Um, and this is largely at the wholesale end. At the retail end, it's even it's even worse. So yeah. the state, you know, I mean, these are some of the examples that the state gives uh, and has given repeatedly, right? And uh, you had some of the more sort of anecdotal examples being given by people like Hamad Azhar, for example, when he pointed out that uh, big businessmen in uh, large marketplaces in Lahore and Karachi, and he sort of revealed the amount of tax that they actually paid. Now, this is uh, this is a this is a deadlock, right? This is a deadlock. The state wants more taxes. These guys don't want to pay up, right? Uh, why does this deadlock always get resolved? on one side of the equation, okay? Uh, well, the fact of the matter is that the wholesale retail sector is also politically very salient, right? And that's something mm -hmm. that um, that people are sort of increasingly becoming aware of. That's, that's There's work on this that exists out there. I've contributed a bit to this discussion as well. But essentially, uh, marketplaces are important sites of economic and political activity, right? Uh, so take any given city uh, in Pakistan, right? Uh, the bazaar, is also is not just uh, a site for economic exchange. It's also a site for social exchange. It's also the site where cultural exchange takes place. It's also the site that's most closely associated with the religious economy or the religious sector as a whole, right? In, in a lot of places, it's the only public space uh, that exists out there, right? And yeah, that's and the, it's oh, the only, I would say, the only public space also where interaction occurs across classes on a daily basis. Sure, uh, exactly. In many right. ways, right? Right, so... Um, so so that's the that's sort of one major building block of this, right? The other building block is that uh, because of the geo, the geographical specificity of a marketplace, uh, which is that there are people who operate firms there in close proximity, they face similar conditions in terms of infrastructure, security, uh, basic municipal services. Uh, there is uh, it lends itself as a possible basis for collective action, by which I mean uh, collective action that can that can be of various types. Uh, initially, it's only for club good provision, which is basically getting together so we can fix the street light, we can fix the road, we can provide security to ourselves, and we can yeah. hire some sweeper who can come in and clean it, right? So the fact is that these are problems that are faced by everyone in the marketplace. So there is a culture, so to speak, uh, of getting together what they call apni khidmat aap, right? So getting yeah. together and, and doing something, right? Uh, that formalizes itself in an institutional basis called the trade association or the market association, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, you can start off from Sust near the China border and you can go all the way down to Karachi or you can go from Gwadar to Peshawar and Lahore and every other major or small town. And you will find that nearly every marketplace is organized in the form of a market association of some sort or the other, yep. okay? Some of them are more dynamic. Uh, they hold regular elections. Uh, they're competitive. They, there is equality internally. Some of them just only exist on paper or are meant to sort of, uh, you know, uh, perpetuate the egos of a, of a few businessmen. But yeah. the fact of the matter is that there is a level of organization that exists within the sector. Okay. This is where the conflict then starts to work in their favor because they are mobilized. They ha are Im deeply embedded. Uh, within uh, the public at large, as we've already mentioned, the marketplace is sort of a site for public interaction. It's also the social space that dominates within our urban centers. Um, they're politically influential because they have, again, like you said, if retail margins are high, they also have money to spend. They will invest mm -hmm. in politics like all businessmen do everywhere in the world. It's, it's, it's yeah. not, not exceptional behavior by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and most of all, 
because they play this very public role, in a lot of instances, they're actually themselves aspiring politicians, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so for me, I find what the, 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 the most interesting thing that I found in Lahore, for example, was that local government elections took place here in 2015 under the previous, uh, the previous government and the previous act. Uh, and the number of candidates who were office bearers of their local market association was, was pretty high. And if you look at mm-hmm. the occupational profile, so, about, uh, so the numbers were about out of 272 uh, candidates fielded by the PMLN in Lahore, uh, you had something like uh, 54 were office bearers of their respective market associations, right? And so what you end up with is this very embedded faction or class or group within society that is well connected with the government uh, at all tiers. So local municipal officials, local um, you know uh, revenue officials, connected to the political parties, and also embedded within society as large as employers, as businessmen, as public figures, and and that essentially means that the state is now not dealing with just a small group, but a relatively well-organized group that has national presence, has uh, interesting sort of, uh, and, and, and is pretty networked with one another, although that obviously changes from era to era, but that is something that has existed, right? And has, it was instrumental in producing political outcomes in the 1970s. So the movement against Bhutto, for example, the Nizami Mustafa movement, the bazaar or the marketplace, was a central site of contestation and antagonism, right? So that's the, that's, it has a history there as well. So essentially a lot of the Pakistan's tax troubles actually just come down to the fact that the state uh, is a, you want to call it too weak or that the state is too embedded. uh, And that's the term that I would prefer with this particular faction or this particular group that is now just unfortunately central to resolving the fiscal crisis that the Pakistani state faces on a repeated basis. Again. And, and that's, that, that, that is so interesting. Go ahead. Sorry, just one last thing. And I and this is this is the point that I feel doesn't get driven home uh, enough because that's that's how the circle gets complete, right? So our conversation started off with indirect taxation, and it started off with saying indirect taxation is regressive, but uh, and now we're talking about how the state needs to Im- implement this uh, the, the sales tax regime, right, which contributes to the regressive culture of taxation, but the state has no option. Because without actually administering a sales tax regime, without enforcing documentation, it will never be able to elicit a true sense of what the income of this particular Mm -hmm. demographic is as well. So the sales tax thing is only an intermediary intervention that you need to make to actually elicit the income of this particular group. And to to give Shabazadi credit here for, for what the FBR was doing, that was trying to address both of these issues at the same time. So it was trying to implement both a sales tax regime for traders and at the same time also implement an income tax regime for small traders, whereby it said, if you just pay a fixed amount, we will count that as your income tax liability, right? So the thinking there was correct. And it was a, it, it, this thinking was also present, though less obvious in the previous government when it administered the withholding tax on banking transactions, because the idea was we're going to force you in a corner to start documenting. Mm-hmm. or start filing income tax returns and that's going to essentially provide us with more insight into what your incomes are what your spending patterns are and we'll be able to tax you better in that time but basically that's what completes the circle is that you need to go through this process so that you can actually enforce more progressive taxation in the country yeah and i mean these associations are pretty politically adept right so i remember when molana fazlur rahman was headed to islamabad for his dharna and yeah. you started hearing statements about market associations, trade associations threatening to also go on strike 
and to also agitate at the street level. Um, and maybe even there were rumors that they had contributed money and finances to his dharna as well to put pressure on the government. And lo and behold, a few days into it, some agreements were made with the trade association and the entire policy around getting the traders and the retailers into the tax net through the point of sale machine drive or whatever hmm. uh, was delayed and there was an agreement and then we never heard anything about it at least i have not uh, in terms of what happened after because the government was in a corner and it saw that this politically engaged influential group would change sides and flip uh, and go on the on the on the rampage on in Peshawar, Lahore, Karachi, etc. And that would be yeah. an untenable situation, right? So they are quite influential. And I think people forget. So what would be your view on how do we change that dynamic, right? Can it be changed in the first place? And if so, how? Because it it seems like they are embedded across political parties, which is why mm. every political party in power tries to do. Uh, reforms on on the taxation front and faces resistance from these groups and then backs down uh, until the next round. Um, but things don't seem to change. How do we change I, that? I think there are, I mean, there are ways of doing this and there are ways of doing smart sort of, I guess, policy implementation, uh, you know, and they've been used in different parts of the world. I mean, India has similar levels of organization, but I think the one thing that really worked for India in this particular instance was that the retail wholesale community is also largely associated with the BJP. And so it was a BJP government that had a sufficient amount of political capital to spend that could actually force through uh, the general sales tax reform efforts that it ultimately did, even though it was yeah. it compromised on certain sort of certain parameters. But the fact is that it had the, the political capital and the, and the leeway to actually do it. Um, so I think yeah, one and way, their, and their yeah. traders are now agitating against formal big players and e-commerce right now because sure. they're losing market share to that. But yeah, so they they picked another battle, so to speak. And yeah. I think in for in the case of Pakistan, I think there are two the two two or three things that that one could possibly explore. The first is, uh, and I think this is the one that's probably never going to happen, is that you need cross-party consensus, uh, and you and it's not just cross-party sort of technocratic consensus. You need cross-party political consensus on a certain bare sort of minimum list of reforms. Uh, that you need, and it doesn't have to be. These reforms aren't their uh, their ideological valence is neutral, right? Uh, that you need to spend more money, uh, that you need to raise more money just to sort of sustain the state uh, in its in its just bare form, not necessarily sort of spend big on development or anything. It's just a, it's something that every gov every government would have to do, right? Regardless of what you're talking about, a are. charter of economy. I mean, I don't want to call it that because I think a charter of economy also suggests that we're sort of papering out. Uh, any ideological differences in terms of spending priorities that each government yeah. would have. But I think in just in terms of sustaining the state itself, right, just essentially feeding the state to, uh, to uh, and making it capable of reproducing itself, I think that requires a certain degree of reforms that, uh, that or it requires a certain political consensus that, that needs to go through. Would, would you put privatization of like, let's say, steel mills PIA as part of this agreement? Mm -hmm. Because again, mm -hmm. that's something they all talk about. I I also think that the effect of the of PIA and, and steel mills is overstated. I mean, if you uh, uh, sure they're, they're they're bloated enterprises and it's a good signaling mechanism for a government that wants to indicate that yeah. it's pro growth and and you know it's serious about reform if it privatizes it. But I mean, in the end of the, at the end of the day, the balance sheet sort of burden is you know I'm I'm sure it can be sort of compensated for by other means. I mean, obviously, I would mm -hmm. ideally want the government if it it plans on running PIA and steel mills to do a good job with it. Uh, but I think there are other bigger fish to fry. Uh, before we, you know, get into this nitty-gritty of sort of privatizing certain kinds of enterprises, but I think from here, privatization could be a separate agenda. 
but yeah. I think the fiscal agenda, at least the taxation front, is certainly something that requires cross-party support. But that's only the first step, I think. The second is actually cultivating a relationship uh, that's constructive with the with the primary stakeholders uh, in this particular in this particular conflict, right? And that means, uh, and there's a problem there. And the problem is that there is no one representative of all traders across Pakistan. That's also a problem. There's no one major organization that represents every wholesale retail, uh, uh, you know, business in this country. Uh, there are multiple competing actors. Some of them are trying to now become apex representatives and sort of trying to enlarge their reach. My uh, former informant Naimir has, has been spending a lot of money trying to um, get the All Pakistan Anjuman Akhtar uh, you know, working as a national body. Um, he might be successful to a certain extent, but it's very hard to say given that we're dealing with six million. Uh, you know, individual businesses and so on. He he may want to look at the Confederation of All India Traders, which is yeah. the big apex body in India, and learn some lessons <laughs> some, from, some there. from there. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, I think the state would have to reach out extensively and and find uh, an agenda or or at least develop an agenda that it can implement over a longer time period, right? So the biggest problem that I think Shab, the FBR encountered this time around was that it front-loaded all of its major reforms documentation um, through CNIC provision, uh, the uh, introduction of uh, sort of withholding uh, responsibilities, the expansion of the definition of who constitutes a tier one retailer, all was happening at the same time. All of this was was bundled through uh, their, this government's first budget, right? And, and this is problematic because it's also happening at a time when uh, you're going through a period of macroeconomic stabilization and yeah. growth rates are generally sort of plummeting um, and businesses are generally not doing as well as they would be, right? So, But Umair, there is no time, right? Like the long time horizon that you're talking about, like every government comes in power, it has two and a half, three years at most to do what it wants to do. And then it faces instability and elections are around the corner and it's looking over its shoulders to see whether it's going to survive or not. So how do you get to a long-term framework when the stability is not there? So I'm, okay, so... I'm just saying that that if this was if this was done in an ideal setting, okay, yeah, you would do it. You would do it with uh with like a five-year window or whatever, right? But again, this is just what the what a technocratic recipe would look like. The actual battle, and this is, I mean, it's going to sound like a really simplistic solution at the end, but the actual battle is how do you sustain uh, opposition or how do you sustain political pressure, right? That for me is is a core question for any reform effort, okay, whether it's civil services reform or whether it's taxation reform. The crux of the matter is that you will be successful if, uh, in, in doing it, A, if you're actually committed to doing it, and B, that the political consequences are not as large uh, in terms of you implementing them, right? And that is something that could only be done if, for example, the state becomes less embedded or dependent on these particular actors, which means that the political parties in question who are leading the government don't see these actors as, as central to their political economy uh, as they currently are. Now, I know that's a really sort of pie in the sky sort of thing to say. No, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but it, it, you, what you're essentially saying is, and I know you don't like the word lobby, but essentially there has to be another lobby as a counterbalance to this lobby that goes out and says, wait a minute, you got to tax these guys, otherwise we're going to mount political pressure on you if you don't. And there are consequences of not following through on that. Okay, so here's, a, here's, a, here's an interesting parallel from, from India, right? For the longest time, uh, the BJP, was the biggest uh, proponent of ensuring that a branded uh, retail and wholesale may uh, foreign direct investment would not cross the 49% threshold. Yeah. This was a this was yeah. a historical 
uh, you know, landmark sort of thing that the BJP, and you can trace that all the way back to the BJP's uh, sort of foundation in the 1980s, where it said that it would stand with the small and medium-sized retailer. Yeah. And, then suddenly, and there are some brilliant speeches on the Lok Sabha that you can watch on YouTube about exactly. that debate. And the then 90s. it and then it and then it becomes and then it sort of it changes tack at some point, you know, later down in the line, right? It becomes more uh, open to this idea of inviting foreign direct investment in retail and wholesale. It becomes more open to the imposition of a value-added taxation regime. Why does the BJP? Why is the BJP capable of doing that? Because the BJP is no longer reliant on just the small businessmen, upper caste, middle caste lobby to sustain its electoral salience, right? It is now a party that has deeper roots in society, thanks obviously to the RSS's organizational framework. It is, it is a party that is able to draw in on the support of a much wider coalition of social actors. And that is why it's able to piss off, sorry, pardon my, but it's able to sort of make- Yeah, no. Yeah, it's able to sort of essentially, um, it's able to say F you to one particular lobby in the process. I mean, obviously not completely burning bridges with them either, but saying that, okay, you know, we need to undertake this reform uh, because of whatever reason. And, you know, we're willing to sell out one particular segment that has very closely been associated with the BJP historically. And even that. Yeah, but I would also add here. Yeah. Yeah, it's incremental. It's one step forward, two steps back at times. But the third thing that I would add here in terms of why the BJP was able to do this was it became reliant on actors like Reliance, not to uh, add to it, (laughs) but like the corporate, the corporate India, rise of corporate India facilitated that transition because they were able to fund and finance and gain influence in both parties essentially to guard their own interests. And their interest was formalization of the economy. Um, and therefore, when the government came in, one of the first measures it passed was an about face on the retail FDI norms yeah. um, that allowed actors like Walmart to grow and enter the market. Sure. Um, and this reliance on reliance is actually something that I find very interesting because reliance also is, you know, it's, it's one of the players that wants to consolidate the retail side uh, in the Absolutely. economy and it wants to work in the, in the formal sector. So for BJP is actually taking out the competition. Uh, when it sort of intervenes in this particular manner, right? Because it's it, it, economies of scale in this particular instance would actually work in their favor. So, uh, so yeah. So I think that's that. That's literally. I mean, it's a. It's. I know it's a really sort of. It's a shallow sort of. Uh, you know, in, uh, way of of responding to all of this. But basically, what what we're essentially arguing is that our political parties need to be, for the lack of a better term, more organized, disciplined, and autonomous as actors for them to actually push through uh, this kind of reform. Because what we know for a fact by now is that the, the recipe is that they have the advice, they have the technocratic advice, and sort of sitting in some of these meetings, uh, talking to some of these people, there is also recognition within political parties that this is something that, yeah, needs to be done. Otherwise, uh, this the, the fiscal project of the Pakistani state uh, just simply sort of, it falls apart every single time. But uh, having said all of that, you also need political, you need, you need political capital that you can burn eventually, right? And that political capital can only come from uh, uh, you know a disciplined organized party organization and it can only come from the fact that if you're embedded within a, a wider variety of social groups uh, than just being sort of dependent on one or two uh, and i think that's the that's yeah i mean if you, you can use this exact same sort of model of understanding this and you can sort of go back to the implementation of say uh, the agricultural income tax or raising the water yeah. irrigation prices or increasing mm-hmm. the tube well electricity bill or any of those other reforms and you'd come up with a similar diagnosis, right? And it's it's literally as simple as that. Yeah, that's, in, I mean, essentially a story of like, not, I wouldn't say capture, but increase or outsize influence of one group or the other in the political domain and lack mm-hmm. of diversity within political parties to act as a counterbalance or a counter 
influence on let's say the retail lobby or the agricultural lobby or whatever mafia you want to call them or whatever <laughs> that is but essentially when the decision is being made to push through some tough reforms um the influential voices in the room or the influential voices on the street are the ones that are actually going to be the losers in many yeah. cases uh from the reforms that are generated so that that's very interesting i think people often miss that so i'm glad uh that you were able to explain that and and dive deep into it switching over to the bureaucratic side what's the i'm guessing there also influence is is what is at the core of uh the lack of reform or the resistance to reform but that's something i don't really understand is like and i i'm sure you will do a great job in explaining that but how does that influence get uh or influence is able to act as a resistance to the reform efforts on the bureaucratic side and also like what are why are these reforms needed on the bureaucracy in the first place uh okay so let's take the the last question first so why are reforms needed in the bureaucracy i mean you can get any set of reasons for that the first i mean the most common ones that are given is that the bureaucracy exercises an outsized influence on uh policy making on regulation uh on uh, service delivery um and that the current a uh, system that we have in place which is split between an elite bureaucracy that's recruited centrally and provincial bureaucracies and local bureaucracies that system does not have the space to uh, bring in the level of competence skill set uh, just the impetus required to do these jobs well right i mean it's literally just a human resource crisis that the pakistani state faces and so if we think of it as a human resource crisis uh, then that's what essentially all reform efforts are are attempting to tackle figure so that's the that's literally just the gist of what mm-hmm. the starting point is for any effort at civil service reform uh, that's being carried out i think uh, so just to give you sort of a backdrop on this my involvement with the uh, with the current task force on civil services reform uh, was uh, was limited to the two domains that i had previously been working in before the task force was actually constituted so i was looking at something related to how civil servants are recruited and the other thing was how civil servants mm-hmm. are trained so we were doing a research project on uh, the training of civil servants essentially so what happens once they enter the civil services uh, what sort of skill acquisition do they actually go under uh, are the skills that they're being given or the trainings that they're being given any any useful here the new government came in dr ishit was aware of the work that we were doing and so we were integrated with the task force uh, that uh, that was set up uh, by the prime minister so and how has know, that experience been like sorry to go on a tangent but the government and the mainstream media is known for setting up task forces that don't actually do any tasks or sure. at least that the only task is a report but you've been in in the belly of the beast like what has that been like and what's your view on uh the reform efforts under undergoing right now I think it's an interesting I think it's interesting I think I I I don't think my experience has been particularly unique I think you would find similar experiences being told by people who've served on previous task forces um i i have worked with the government in the past so i knew uh, a bit about sort of the pace at which government works uh i think what's interesting to note is uh that there are uh that people are very willing to put their biases out on the table uh and they're very very willing to uh stake exactly a uh, state exactly what uh who stands to lose what in the process so i think in in some instances i think it's been a very uh, honest experience in in the in That's the good. Sense, yeah that it's actually uh, but but it's honest in a, in an intellectual sense uh, ultimately uh, whether that means that the needle moves in the right direction or whatever you think is yeah. the right direction uh, that's obviously a different ball game altogether so i think that's been generally the experience that i have i've had to face um and and it's been yeah it's been a good learning experience i've also uh, we've produced good works so we carried out uh, sort of a, a, a one of the largest surveys 
uh, ever done of Pakistani civil servants in terms of their uh, baseline skill acquisition ah, and what sort of training okay. uh, that they, uh, you know, that they receive and what their expectations are of that training was a perception survey essentially. Um, and so that produced good data that we were able to, uh, you know, use and harness. And we've been able to get through some of those reforms uh, through the cabinet on at least on training exercises. But anyway, to come back to the larger uh, sort of the larger question yeah. here. Uh, so I think, so that's the, the, the problem statement we've already said, this is the problem. Uh, the other thing that we uh, are, are sort of looking at is that other countries have eventually sort of developed uh, more sophisticated civil service structures uh, that have greater space for bringing in, uh, for the lack of a better word, technocratic talent uh, at various key uh, stages in the government process. So they're able to bring in people who have expertise on say energy, if you're dealing with the energy ministry, or they're able to harness talent that already exists within government on those particular roles. The problem with Pakistan is that the, the generalist cadre or the secretariat cadre that we have, which uh, obviously is tasked with running the administration of the state, often spills over into the policy and the regulatory side of affairs as well. Mm. And that's a, historical, that's a historical construct of the colonial state and the post-colonial state in, 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 yeah. in South Asia. Uh, that the civil service, because it's the permanent structure of the state, tends to exercise an overwhelming influence on the way that business is conducted. Um, now, on its own, if you have a very talented civil service, which is just you know full of like big people who are like essentially Renaissance men and and who are experts yeah. in everything, uh, that shouldn't yeah. be an issue. He guys, someone can you know, as Marx once said, that you can you know fish in the morning and and do carpentry in the afternoon and you know uh, compose a song in the evening. If you can do all of that well, sure, you know that's how the government should be run then. But the problem is that most of them can't do that well, right? And uh, I think, uh, and I take my friend Omar Yasima's point. Uh, sort of very clearly that the problem is not so much that these people are are, are sort of they're, they're not competent they're very competent they're probably the most competent pool of human resource talent that Pakistan has anywhere uh, right but the problem is that they're they're not technical experts and that the incentive structure that that they encounter as government officers and as civil servants is actually geared to producing uh, the exact opposite of the kind of outcomes that you actually want right. Um, and that includes obviously the fact that they uh, that their accountability mechanisms are poor. Uh, that means that they're rarely evaluated on their actual performance. Uh, they're very rarely pushed through uh, certain tests and, and sort of particular exercises that would actually gauge whether they're fit for purpose of these jobs. Um, and I think that's how the that that's how essentially the services, you know, that's how. So how done. does how does a what's the incentive structure to grow professionally? If if that's not the criteria, then so the incentive structure. I mean, and and I, I I'm I'm probably sort of being a bit too frank here, but the in, in incentive structure is essentially that if you know the right people and if you're well connected to your seniors in the civil services, you will eventually. I mean, it, it, this is this is verifiable by actual data, right? I mean, if you look at the way that yeah. the current civil service, elite civil service in Pakistan works, if you enter in grade 17 and you're allocated to a prestigious cadre, there there are very there. I mean, the the chance of you not making it to at least grade 21 is negligible, right? You will eventually yeah. rise up to a senior policy position in the government, regardless of what you do in terms of your actual performance, right? And we've, I spent a fair amount of time with uh, civil servants who were, uh, who were, for the lack of a better word, tasked with the human resource management part of the civil services. And a lot mm -hmm. of them have similar complaints, which is that uh, even if an officer gets a bad personal evaluation report or PR, what used to be called the ACR, uh, they will often go uh, and supersede their direct superior to uh, someone they're connected to socially or through their occupational group or mm -hmm. through you know whatever other networks, and they'd have it overwritten, and that's uh, that's something that happens pretty commonly, right? So I mean, it so was, essentially, 
essentially ideas and innovation and competence is not the measure of performance. It is connections, network, yeah. you know, let's say, uh, to be frank, like sucking up to your boss, who's an influential person. Um, those are the criteria that will get you going from grade 17 to grade 21. Sure. Um, not being innovative and competent at your job. In yeah. most of the cases. In most cases. In most cases. And I think there are there are always going to be islands of competence uh, and there will be islands of dynamism. But those are uh, those are self-driven islands or those are islands that are self-created rather than a system actually perpetuating them in some way or the other. Right. Yeah. And they're um, all and, drowning in a sea in an ocean of incompetence. I don't know if it's incompetence or inertia or wh- whatever you want to call it or bad incentives or whatever it is. But it, I think that's part of the problem. The second part of the problem is, and this is something that you can't really uh, or you can't fully blame the bureaucracy for is that uh, some of the most important tiers of the way that the government works are still incredibly bureaucratic, right? So including, for example, urban management or urban governance, right? That's, a, that's such a central part of how a government, of, of how you know, day-to-day life is experienced by citizens in this country. Um, and that's where a lot of the implementation and service delivery parts exist. And it's still a heavily bureaucratized entity, right? Your, your local government is still run by bureaucrats. Uh, there's very little political oversight. And so it is bureaucrats who are essentially then responsible for making, uh, you know, quote unquote, policy decisions on these issues, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are then making decisions on, okay, how many uh, floors should we allow a, 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 a building to be sort of, you know, go up in terms of its, uh, you know, in terms of its height, uh, what should be the FAR for these buildings, you know, whether we should build a new housing scheme or should we rezone land? And these are decisions that bureaucrats are making in Lahore and Karachi. But yeah. that's not and they're not good. urban experts and they're, they're not exactly. experts at all in terms of urban urbanization or right. anything of that sort. So, yeah. So which is I think that's that's so that there's also a, a design flow in terms of those, the system is working, which produces this this kind of, uh, you know, the, these kinds of uh, outcomes. Now, changing this right obviously entails uh, sort of destabilizing the way that the current, uh, you know, structure of privilege for the lack of better term actually operates. Right. And uh, the the fact is that the elite bureaucracy is, uh, and maybe it's a it's a loaded term to use, but the elite bureaucracy is cartelized, right? And when I say cartelized, I mean mm-hmm. that it is relatively well organized internally. You okay? get uh, that they will stick out for their own, um, depending on the occupational group in question, um, and that they have organized, uh, they they're, they're organized internally. They have voice. They're well connected to all organs of the state, uh, you know, whether it's politics, whether it's the military. Um, they have voice in in in, in decision making that's happening in all of these arenas. And so, uh, any effort to uh, to reform or to change this particular system is going to be met with uh, with resistance, right? Uh, but even that resistance is, you know, I mean, that resistance can take various forms. It can be overtly conflictual. So, in the case of like, you know, you have pen down strikes. Unless you take NAB off our back, or if you don't release one of ours who you put in jail, we won't sign another letter. Which, it can, which forced the prime minister to go and talk to the bureaucrats and give speeches and say, right? we're not going to let this happen anymore. Exactly. Or, or the conflict could be more constructive in some cases where, you know, someone pushes someone who is very idealistic and is trying to push through a particular set of reforms and the bureaucracy could give them a reality check saying, you know, well, uh, this will upset XYZ in the process, and that's not what you want. But in any case, there is uh, there is a conflict there, right? And that conflict uh, is again, it produces uh, a persistent outcome in favor of one party over another, uh, and that's uh, that's been the experience, I guess, that's been the historical experience, and that's I would say that that's the experience of this government uh, to a large extent as well. 
So again, over there, would you recommend that, again, you need political consensus in terms of baseline reforms that need to be pushed through so that the bureaucracy, at least when it pushes back, realizes that across political lines, they will not find uh, a support base that will, you know, engage with them on whatever it is they're trying to do to be, you know, to to slow down the pace of reform that is needed in, in the particular sector. So both. So horizontally, yes, in terms of uh, they won't be able to find an ally within the existing options, uh, uh, you know, or the existing principal options that, are, that, that, that already are out there. But vertically, I think the, the other uh, sort of uh, the bigger, I think, combat that you would be able to do is if you were uh, if you were able to actually democratize how decision making is being done uh, at multiple tiers of government. Right. So where political authority then becomes uh, the norm as far as uh, uh, decision making. Again, this is one of those things that is, you know, structural in nature and doesn't happen overnight. But the fact of the matter is that with, with greater political ownership of the policy process, of the regulatory process, of the uh, of the way that how decision and service delivery, for example, is carried out, that is what would essentially water down the, the role of the bureaucracy mm-hmm. uh, to a pretty significant extent. So for me, I mm-hmm. think democratizing local government is probably the biggest reform that you can make in terms of the mm-hmm. nature of how civil services are supposed to operate, right? Uh, and to give them credit for this, the, P- the PTI government, at least in Punjab, has produced an act which is, uh, which at least in these initial stages promises a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, political and, and social oversight of, of how uh, local governments are supposed to work. But the fact is that, again, it's under pressure to not implement it. It's under pressure to water yeah. down. It's under pressure to sort of uh, take away certain key functions and give it back to the province where it be controlled by the bureaucracy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the same battle that we're seeing again. And this is by the And way, there are no local governments in Punjab at this point. There are no right? local governments in Punjab. And I quite sort of appreciated this one uh, PTI uh, uh, social media person online. He basically said that, you know, I mean, the incentives for us to actually hold a, a, a local government election now are non-existent, right? Why would we possibly yeah. hold a local government election when we know... They will get trounced across get the Punjab. Like. Across the Punjab, right? So, okay, so just one just one other thing that I want to add to this discussion is that on the two cases, uh, by the way, that we've looked at, and I think this is something that tells you a pretty bleak story about Pakistan's political economy. The two cases that we've looked at, uh, taxation reform that looks at the retail wholesale sector and uh, local government and bureaucratization reform in general. In both those two instances were two reforms that the Musharraf regime attempted in 2000-2001. Yep. And had to scale back down from them in both instances. A so, dictator had to scale back reforms right so my favorite story my favorite story of the of the of the early years of the musharraf regime is this when musharraf essentially introduced something called the documentation of the economy ordinance uh which was geared at producing the same outcomes that we're currently seeing shabar zebi or what shabar zebi was trying to do at the fdr right which was trying to back to the future yeah was trying to document the incomes and sales of uh traders and merchants in large urban centers and his grand strategy was to essentially send in uh soldiers two shops where they would sit down <laughs> and they would attempt to document uh, sort of what the actual scale of transactions were were, were taking place. In response to that, you had two separate uh, waves of strikes, one of which lasted for something like 15 days in major wholesale markets. Right? And this is happening just before uh, 9-11. So obviously the Pakistani economy doesn't, isn't flush with liquidity as well right, at this point. Yeah. So it's pretty, doing pretty poorly as it is. And that's when Musharraf had to back down. And uh, you know, we have a, we've had similar three-day strikes uh, you know, over the past six months. 
And uh, the government then had to re- change its position on CNICs. It has changed its position on tier yeah. one retailer categories um, and so on and so forth. So that's the, so I think it's, it's really a, a telling feature of Pakistan's political economy that, uh, and sorry, and the other thing was obviously Musharraf trying to bring uh, the DC under the Nazim in the 2001 or the uh, DC under the mayor uh, in the 2001 system. Uh, and that also getting rolled back uh, after a couple of years. So, so in both instances, uh, you have these efforts at reform, whether they're being done under a civilian dispensation or, or, a, or a dictatorial regime, uh, that these are so entrenched, uh, these problems are so entrenched uh, that it becomes really difficult to sort of tackle them. So, Mayor, what you're basically, I mean, this is depressing me because if a dictator was unable to do what this government, which is, by the way, one of the weakest governments, if you look at parliamentary numbers uh, mm. in the central government, uh, it is weak in the Punjab. Um, if a dictator was unable to do what this government is trying to do, then are you really hopeful that they will be able to get through this in the next couple of years before elections? Or will they continue to muddle along and will continue to pontificate about what reforms are needed? The task forces will put out their reports and we will talk about uh, you know, having a long-term vision and a strategy and political consensus. But really... Um, there is really no incentive or even capacity at this point in mm. time, speaking of political capital, to push something as difficult as taxation and bureaucratic reforms through uh, the political economy of Pakistan. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty fair assessment. I don't think that this much is going to change. Uh, I think that's, I'm not, again, I'm just not, I'm not being, sort of not predicting that whether this is going to happen or not. I'm just saying yeah. that going by past trends, uh, I think the, the opposition to a lot of these things is, is, is pretty significant. Um, and if anything, uh, I think this government is actually uh, sort of, it, at least on the civil services part, I, I feel like this government is particularly susceptible to uh, the pressure of uh, of the higher bureaucracy on certain issues. Yeah. Uh, it's been holding out so far on the issue of district magistracy, so that restoring uh, judicial powers to uh, civil servants. Um, but that's something that repeatedly keeps coming up. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a that's a conflict that you know, it might get resolved one way or the other over the next three years. Similarly, on the retail wholesale front, I, I'm slightly more optimistic about uh, about that simply because uh, we've seen the needle being pushed somewhat in the in the right direction uh, over the last eight to ten years. Uh, Isaac died, you know, and he did a, a lot wrong, and you know, he's obviously uh, one of the worst finance ministers that we probably had. Yeah. Um, he by the way speaking of finance ministers i uh, uh, sorry to cut you off yeah. but i fundamentally believe that pakistan does not have finance ministers pakistan has accounting ministers whose job is just to balance the books until the book blows up basically but that's yeah. that's what isagdar and every uh, finance minister i've seen in my life at least is not a finance minister he's an accounting minister yeah so 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 isagdar was able to push the needle on this particular issue by introducing these uh, particular aspects, and I'm not going to bore you with the details of these of the legislation, but it was particular aspects within the sales tax and the income tax laws uh, that uh, forced uh, at least retailers in big urban centers uh, to start uh, sort of registering themselves with sales tax authorities, um, and they started to sort of contribute a bit more to uh, sort of to, to, to the tax base. Right. Um, similarly, I think some of the steps that uh, that uh, this government has taken, uh, especially in terms of filing. Uh, and and sort of just ensuring compliance on income tax returns and sales tax returns. I think those are some of the things that will stay. But my personal sort of, I think, uh, sense is that the biggest change in terms of uh, broadening the tax base is actually only going to happen if you see formalization take place within wholesale and retail sector. And that's uh, that's a much more longer process. 
And I think uh, that sort of consolidation will take years and years. Um, you know, that one big player enters the market and starts to consolidate, say, um, you know, FMCG retail or starts to consolidate uh, wholesale for particular types of goods. I think that's something that is, we're still some way away from that, but that would, in my view, that would be the only way that this could actually yeah. work out. So one of the things that, you know, a critic who's listening to this discussion will push back, especially on the taxation question, is that you guys keep talking about growing tax base and Pakistan needs to tax its people more and it's a poor country and it can't do that. And you mentioned at the outset, that's a wholly different conversation, but mm. I want to touch upon it a bit because that critic would say the two things that you're not talking about in this entire conversation is one, that Pakistan's government and its government expenditure is actually really wasteful. And there yeah. are a lot of inefficiencies there, which you plug the inefficiencies, you actually, they would argue, significantly reduce the need for more taxes uh, from an already stressed economy um, and a population that is struggling because of macroeconomic stability measures. Mm -hmm. And two, that same critic or some of the other critics would say, Pakistan spends a whole lot on guns and yeah. maybe it's time that it stops spending on guns and spent more on butter. Mm -hmm. um, but that conversation does not happen in Pakistan. And my, I want to just get your take on the first point about government inefficiencies and two, um, do you think there is even a chance remotely in the near future that Pakistanis actually start having a sophisticated conversation of whether or not defense expenditure outlays should continue to be so high for an economy that's struggling to meet development and human development uh, expenditure requirements that are critical for its future success? Uh, so, okay. So on the first issue, which is, uh, okay, let's take the second issue. Word. I think, I mean, I, I, I think I'm pretty clear in terms of where I stand on the gun versus butter debate, right? I think Pakistan, Pakistan's military expenditure is unsustainable. Pakistan's, uh, the, the, the justification for military expenditure uh, that is given, uh, it doesn't cut it as far as sort of, you know, my understanding of the situation is concerned. Uh, we don't, we're not even sure there's, there's no rationalization of defense expenditure. There's no mm -hmm. oversight. Uh, so we're not really sure where this money is going. It's a, it's a, you know, insured buys a security, but uh, at what price is, is this probably the yeah. most inefficient form of expenditure that we have in terms of what we're getting for it in the end? Uh, I mean, that's surely, that should be the normative position uh, that I hold. Uh, practically, uh, I don't, I mean, obviously, I think, you know, we've, we've had 70 years of, of a gun versus butter debate, and it's mostly been resolved in one way, uh, in, 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 yeah. in only one direction. <laughs> so I don't expect that this government or any future government in the near future to have, um, you know, to have a, to have a different take on it. I mean, I mean, uh, if you believe the, the, so the proto, well, it's not really conspiracy theory, it's reasonably well documented that Isad Dar tried to sort of intervene in the guns versus butter debate. And now he's yeah. living in London, right? So I mean, that's a yeah. that's that's basically one one way. There are some interesting charts that you can put together mm -hmm. in terms of allocation requirements and disbursement that were actually made. Yeah. And then Miftai Smile in his last year sort of tried to correct the course, but it was a bit too late by then. Yeah. So so Pakistan is an outlier, and I and I just want to address this one point that Pakistan is an outlier as far as defense expenditure total GDP uh, percentage of total GDP is concerned. It is also an outlier when defense expenditure. Uh, as a percentage of total government expenditure is taken into account. I know what the critics say that because Pakistan is a devolved federation, a lot of the government expenditure actually takes place at the provincial and local level. Pakistan mm -hmm. remains an outlier even if you add all of that as well. So the numbers yeah. are yeah. very categorical. Even if you add provincial and local government expenditure, uh, defense spending as a percentage of that, Pakistan is sort of, you know, with states that you it doesn't, it probably wouldn't want to be in the company of. Uh, that's, the, that's one thing. Okay. The other... Yeah. 
the other thing is about sort of generally government expenditure being inefficient and sort of whether rationalizing that is a problem. I think that links back to the other problem that we've discussed, which is the bureaucracy, right? So where is a lot of this expenditure being incurred um, is essentially it's current expenditure. It's usually the money that that is required to essentially just, you know, provide pays and perks and privileges in government. That's where a lot of this money is being dispersed, right? Because even if all of the PSDP, the, the, the development program is inefficient, that's still uh, only a, a small percentage of total government outlay as it is, right? The rest of the government outlay is being done on current expenditures, which are deeply inefficient. So, so I mean, I, I guess you could tackle that problem by reforming the bureaucracy, uh, but that's also, yeah. again, we've already concluded that that's not- We talked happen. about that. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think, uh, so, I, so I, I do appreciate the argument uh, that uh, Pakistan has a wasteful government and there's no point feeding this wasteful government by preying on its citizens. Uh, but I am still skeptical of resolving key human developmental and social developmental problems without the state playing some sort of uh, developmental role in this process. And that developmental role can only be done through, uh, you know, a fiscal intervention of some sort. Um, and you don't, you can only sustain it through improved taxation efforts, right? So, I mean, I am willing to listen to the alternative case, but I feel like the alternative case isn't particularly persuasive when it comes to answering mm -hmm. developmental questions. Okay, so, I mean, you need yeah. to educate your population. You need to, you know, make sure that they are healthy. You need to feed them in some instances. How are you ever going to meet that expenditure, right? The market is, sure, capable of maybe providing education in urban Punjab, but it's certainly not capable of providing education in rural Sindh or in KP and parts of Balochistan, right? The state will have to intervene in some form or the other, right? And it needs money to do it. So, so yeah, so I think that's, uh, that's certainly part of the, that's part of the equation. I think there's the last thing on this expenditure part, which is, which is a debate that seems to have cropped up increasingly over the last couple of years is this debate over the NFC and whether the federal yeah. government is being bankrupted by the national finance commission award and whether we're just devolving too much money to the provinces. Now on that debate, uh, I think that debate is disingenuous because I think it tries to package a particular political vision of the country through a technocratic argument, uh, but even leaving yeah. sort of bad faith arguments to one side. My point to the, on that would be uh, that the state, the federal government still has access to some of the most dynamic sources of tax revenue that, that are possible, right? It is still the arbiter of yeah. sales tax on goods. It's still the arbiter of income tax, right? It just needs to up its game so that it can collect more yeah. money, right? The provincial governments have done reasonably well in increasing their revenue base by including the GST on services. Uh, some of them have also shown some dynamism as far as property taxation is concerned. If the provincial governments can, uh, you know, are, are capable of doing some of that, right? And they're not doing a great job by any stretch of the imagination, but they're certainly, you know, playing some part, then surely the federal government needs to sort of, you know, do its part as yeah. well. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree on that. And I think, uh, that argument on the NFC and the 18th Amendment is is led by political perspectives and political ideologies and mm -hmm. not by real focus on what Pakistan needs to do to better prepare for the future and have more better prospects for sustainable growth. I, I think it's led by political agenda and yeah. not by economic arguments. Um, you know, uh, the, one of the things I've tried to do in, in this podcast with my guests is like try to get a sense of, you know, what they see or what they would do if they were in position of power. You've been in a task force. Let's say you were 
the reform czar. I, I've mm-hmm. been making people czars a lot <laughs> yeah. in this series. Um, Omer Javed, you are the reform czar, the prime minister sitting and listening to you and is saying, I will give you three wishes in terms of what reforms that you want to push uh, in the next three years that we've got left in the PTI government. Mm-hmm. Um, what would those be? Um I mean, for this particular government or, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I would certainly try to find a workable solution uh, to the to to the tax base issue, which means if it involves, uh, you know, working with trader organizations, trying to come up with a consensus in terms of what would be a, uh, a reasonable sort of rate of taxation or what would be a reasonable, uh, uh, you know, a compliance expectation from that particular sector, I think that would go a long way in resolving a whole bunch of issues. Uh, the second, uh, I mean, on the civil services part, I mean, I really, you know, I feel like uh, I've, I've focused historically only on recruitment and training. I would make recruitment in particular a little more dynamic. I would end this uh, particular idea that you uh, have, uh, you know, that you give a uniform exam and then you reveal, sort of give stated preferences um, and then you get sorted based on wherever you fall within that particular, you know, within a particular merit ranking, right? That's essentially you're... It's a very, colo- it's a very colonial system. It's right? a colonial system and you're allocating people to jobs they didn't even want to do, man. I mean, how that's such a yeah. basic principle of human resource management that you're violating in the process. So I would at least rationalize uh, the way that you recruit civil servants. And the second thing, and so to be, sorry, so wish to be. Yeah, no. <laughs> Okay, the, the, the interesting thing is that the federal and the provincial governments actually do have technocratic capacity in the form of what we call ex-cadre officials. So the actual civil service, if you look at the federal strength of the civil services, there are only 6,000 people who are recruited through uh, the civil services examination, BPS 17 and above, right? The rest mm-hmm. of the entire sort of body of uh, civil service, uh, of civil servants that exist out there, uh, are actually technocrats, right? These are soil engineers and statisticians and pulmonologists and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, economists in the Ministry of Finance. I would change the way that the current structure of the civil service is working to make sure that these guys get an equal shot at becoming, uh, you know, heads of their departments, right? Rather than it always being some bureaucrat from some occupational group. Yeah, I'd rather right? see the uh, a soil specialist or coming out of the Punjab who's an extensive fieldwork to become the Secretary of Agriculture because right. they would have a better sense of like what's going on on the field yeah. uh, and what's needed to like increase agricultural productivity. Or, just even as if an you, example, right? or even if you don't want to make him a Secretary of Agriculture or him or her Secretary of Agriculture, you could uh, just recalibrate the positions in a way that the highest technical position in the in the department of the ministry has a greater say in how that ministry and department is run and the policy planning that actually yeah. happens, right? So that's the that's you know, and that sounds like such a simple thing to. I mean, the UK did this a while back, where it designated that only certain types of uh, that it will only recruit people with certain types of educational background or certain types of experiences into particular types of uh, uh, into ministries, right? So whether it's the uh, whether it's the Treasury or whether it's uh, the Department for International Development, you had to have a degree uh, in economics or political economy for you to get a job there, right? I'm not even saying something as radical as that. I'm not saying that the Secretary Energy or Secretary Water and Power needs to be a, a Water and Power Specialist. I'm just saying that you already have those people in the system, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of them have been undertrained. Some of them have been neglected. They rarely rise through the BPS ranks as it is. They get recruited in 16 and 17, spend most of their careers um, and if they're very lucky, they retire in grade 20, right? So I know someone who is a uh, who is an oncologist, a nuclear medicine specialist, 
uh, 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 sorry, a cancer specialist, and he's he's essentially spent uh, his entire career as a very qualified doctor in government service, and will probably retire at most at Great Wayne, right? So I mean, that's a that's a as opposed to say someone who joins the civil services as a generalist and then is almost guaranteed to to finish in grade 21 if not above right so yeah. these are just really basic things that you can tweak uh but again they require obviously you know they require expenditure of political capital and they require a lot of other things that the government clearly doesn't have and talking of basics i think you're not the first and you i definitely think you're not the last guest on this podcast who's talked about do getting the basics right um you know noreen muzaffar was on this podcast last week and we were talking about the textile sector and i was like tell me about bangladesh and how did it do so well in the textile sector and she was like well they got the basics right is essentially what the story is like they invested in human development educated their women and mm-hmm. lo and behold all of a sudden bangladesh was becoming has become this booming economic tiger mm-hmm. in the region and is doing so well and i was like that's just basic stuff. She's like, yeah, a lot of times it's just basics that if yeah. you get them right, a lot of economic capacities unleashed and you'd be surprised, um, especially in South Asia where there is an entrepreneurial drive among people, right? They want to do well and they're really hustlers. Um, you, and you see that example around the world. You meet South Asians around the world who've emigrated out of their own home country and you see how well they've done. And it's because they have that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, it's just that they're shackled by essentially the political economy uh, of the country in which they live in. And I think sometimes it's all about the basics at the end of the day. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, last question before yeah. I let you go. You engage with a lot of young people in the classroom and outside. And like one of the things I try to get a sense of like is how are they thinking about Pakistan, its prospects or what concerns they have. And so I uh, would love your thoughts on your engagement with younger people that are coming up and growing up in an economy that isn't doing so well, um, that continues to go from a period of growth to another crisis or two. Um, and so what do you hear from them and in terms of their aspirations and their fears about the future? I have, I'm split on this. Uh, partially, well, partly because of my the, the, the sample that I interact with uh, the most is uh, largely students at lums and their kids who come from relatively privileged household. So they know, yeah. or at least at the back of their mind, they know they're afforded a certain degree of uh, protection that uh, most other young people in this country do not have. So I think that also means that they also have the freedom to explore um, options and trajectories in life, which uh, most other you know people of their age would not be able to do so. Uh, what I find encouraging though, is that, uh, I, and I don't know if it's a, it's a Gen Z phenomenon or if it's something that's very particular to the demographic that I'm dealing with, uh, but I do find increased amounts of empathy and uh, sort mm-hmm. of a, a, at least a desire to do something uh, for just beyond themselves, right? And that's certainly true for a, a particular subset of the population that I encounter. Um, and I find yeah. that to be very encouraging. I find that to be, I was a student at this university uh, 15 years ago. I, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't even half as empathetic or sort of understanding or intellectually engaged or curious as most of my students are today. Mm. So that's one thing that I find, I don't know if it's an internet phenomenon, if it's a connectivity thing, but it's certainly, it's certainly you see that uh, very categorically. Uh, on the other hand, the other thing that I see, which is, which is quite scary, is very high levels of anxiety, very high levels of, um, um, you know, of, of, of essentially, the, so anxiety. And then the other thing that I see a lot of is this impending sense of them not being able to make it right? Or the sense mm-hmm. that they're constantly consumed by uh, the uh, the desire to do something that would really just establish them and allow them to sort of secure the material or whatever, uh, you know, intellectual aspirations that they might have. 
and I find that yeah. that sense of, uh, of of urgency and uh, and anxiety is partly based on, or it, it partly is perpetuated by the condition that they find themselves within Pakistan, where job market, where, where labor markets are not particularly welcoming, uh, where um, you know the sense of competition with your peers seems to be growing on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I think that it really compounds a lot of things. Then it manifests itself in something as basic as grade anxiety, right? A lot of people, a lot of kids are just really anxious about their grades. They're really anxious about doing well yeah. because they want to make sure that they get the, you know, they get recruited to one of the eight or 10 employers that will offer them a chance at you yeah. know, improved social mobility or to sort of had a better life or, or sort of more wealth or whatever, right? So, uh, so yeah, so I, I, I think there, there are these sort of mixed, uh, senses that I get from the population, from this, from the younger population that I interact with, and I think it's very true for, and it, it, it can, you can sort of extrapolate from this, and you can sort of situate it for the rest of the country as well to a large extent. And I think that's uh, that's essentially what what Pakistan is. It, it, that it, there are people who are uh, questioning uh, the state of affairs, the current state of affairs. They're uh, they're angry with it. They want to sort of, they want things to change. Uh, they want the state to change. I think that's something that a lot of people will talk about. Uh, but at the same time, they're also very anxious uh, because they they're not really sure how to go about doing all of that, right? And they also want to secure and and sort of protect themselves in this process. And this this it's really a, it's not it's not a particularly healthy sort of situation to find yourself in, right? And this is some the, the data that came out of the National Human Development Report that came out a couple of years ago on youth in Pakistan actually shows the same things, right? These are people who are worried about jobs. They uh, they might yeah. be you know they're they're concerned about the country. They uh, really want sort of to do well in life. And they're just worried about whether they'll ever be able to get the opportunity to do so. So, so yeah, so yeah. that's, that's the sense that I get here as well. No, that's hopeful and concerning, right? And mm-hmm. like on the concerning front, it, it is a uh, uh, direct, I, I would say linked directly linked to this growing scarcity of resources in the country, right? A growing population, stagnating economy, you're coming up with, you know, a, a strong educational background and still struggling to get a decent job and have uh, great prospects. And I think on top of it, like I was thinking about it the other day, like if you're a Gen Z or younger teenager growing up in a city like Lahore or Karachi now like I think about my times in growing up in Karachi like at least I saw blue skies and like nice sunsets right <laughs> yeah um, if, if you're in Lahore and Karachi more often than not you don't see a blue sky except when it rains right. um, and that has like not just mental uh, health effects but just physical health effects in terms of the air you're breathing right and that all adds up uh, to this anxiety that people feel uh, especially younger people uh, as they grow up um but I'm like the empathy. I think is is reassuring, and it is something that maybe where I am hopeful of is like maybe that generation will push forward change because they at least understand that structurally Pakistan society is is geared towards a privileged few. Yeah. Um, and if that privileged few is also beginning to feel anxiety, maybe that's the right time for change. Then right in terms of ha- at least having a yeah. conversation um, about what comes uh, next. So. Last uh, one in terms of like, you know, any interesting books that you've recently read that you would recommend our listeners to pick up and, and, and read, in the, uh, in, you know, that you've read recently? So, um, I mean, I, I mostly just read a lot of uh, boring historical stuff for, for academic purposes. Um, so I'm not going to bore your audience with that. Uh, this other book that I did read recently, which I found sort of, you know, it's, it's slightly old now, uh, is um, Maria Popova's figuring, which is uh, essentially she puts together these really wonderful life stories of people, uh, women who worked in uh, science, essentially. 
and mm-hmm. how they were able to sort of transgress uh, boundaries uh, at various points. And it's a very sort of it's it's a it's a beautifully written account and of of, of various uh, you know personalities. And I think it's a it's a great uh, it's also pretty inspirational in some ways. So that's a book that that's actually stayed with me uh, for a while. But uh, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, what the most the, the one that I found intellectually most stimulating recent year in recent months was. Uh, uh, a book by Niladri Bhattacharya called The Great Agrarian Transformation, which is basically about, uh, it, it's a history of Punjab. It's an intellectual history mm-hmm. of Punjab and how sort of Punjab experienced a significant transformation over uh, the colonial era and, and what sort of changes that entailed. It really helps you situate uh, what, uh, you know, what some of the issues that we might still face and how they can be traced back mm-hmm. uh, into history. Um, and it's just a really well-researched book. Uh, it's really well-written. Um, so yeah, so that's definitely uh, something that I would recommend if you could find it. Um, and then lastly, I would plug um, uh, Shandana Moman's book, Crafty Oligarchs, Savvy Voters, uh, which is mm-hmm. which just recently came out. Uh, so if you're interested in understanding how people vote uh, in a rural setting, if there are certain misconceptions that people have about rural voting, uh, and more generally... Biryani, biryani khila di or vote yeah, So that particular, <laughs> those particular kinds of, uh, of, of misconceptions. Shandana's book does a great job of, uh, of really sort of yeah. unpacking uh, political behavior in those, in those, in, 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 in rural Punjab in particular, but I think they have, uh, it has a larger sort of resonance with reality in other parts of the country as well. So that's certainly something that I would very wholeheartedly recommend. Yeah, no, thank you for the recommendations and thank you for joining us uh, for a wonderful discussion. I think our listeners will find it really, really stimulating. And I found it really stimulating because these are topics I think about often, but rarely get to speak to experts about it. So thank you for your time. And uh, we'll have you on again soon to talk more about reforms, maybe towards the end of this government and see, you know, what how you would rate their performance after four or five years of change. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was was an absolute pleasure. And yeah, we hope to speak soon at some point soon. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Pakistanomy. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app and do share it with your friends and family, as well as on your social media. Hope you tune in next time.